You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn East. In Ecclesiastes, we discover that a life spent in pursuit of pleasure, achievement, and control will ultimately leave us empty-handed. Life isn't about what we can obtain, but about what we already have, and learning to receive it from God with gratitude. Welcome to Ecclesiastes, life as gift, not gain. And finally, before Pastor Kevin comes up, we wanna read our scripture for today, and that comes from various passages in the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you're able, would you please join me in standing for the reading of God's word? As fools walk along the road, they lack sense and show everyone how stupid they are. Words from the mouth of the wise are gracious, but fools are consumed by their own lips. At the beginning, their words are folly. At the end, they are wicked madness, and fools multiply words. Do not revile the king, even in your thoughts, or curse the rich in your bedroom, because a bird in the sky may carry your words, and a bird on the wing may report what you say. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you, for you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. If a ruler's anger rises against you, do not leave your post. Calmness can lay great offenses to rest. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Peace be with you. Before we dive into the text today, will you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the gift of gathering together as your children We thank you for the gift of singing together, for prayer, and for your word. I pray as we dive into these really interesting proverbs you've given us to, you've given to us in your word, Lord, that we would hear them, that we would take them to heart. Lord, you you don't just want us to survive in life, you want us to be able to wisely navigate through it so that we, we're not just saved in the future, but in this world today, we might be salt and light and be helpful to our neighbors and to our community. And so I pray that we would hear these words, not as words for other people, but as words for ourselves. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've been going through Ecclesiastes, and we only have a few weeks left. And if you've been reading Ecclesiastes on your own, uh, you know that once you get to about chapter 7, uh, it kind of frays a little bit. The teacher starts to just put together collected sayings that he has. I mean, there's a, there's a real structure to the first six or seven chapters, and then it kind of starts to meander, and there's these proverbs of wisdom, and it's kind of challenging of how do you actually preach it, but there's such great wisdom here that uh, what I wanted to do is spend the next couple of weeks just pulling out some of these proverbs and talking about a couple of different topics because one of the reasons that we chose this book was we saw the need for wisdom. We see in the church, churches like ours, a great demonstration on the need for faith, which is wonderful, and for theological knowledge, which is wonderful, and for biblical knowledge, which is wonderful. But I think that oftentimes in the American church, we lack wisdom. And wisdom is crucial for living a flourishing life. And I even think there's confusion about what wisdom is. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer, which if you've never read that book, I highly recommend it. That's your first application today. J.I. Packer, he helpfully explains the difference or what wisdom is and what it's not. He says that wisdom, it's not 
some kind of privileged, special insight into the mysterious purpose of, purposes of God. To be wise is not that God's pulled back the curtain and that you kind of know something that other people don't know. Instead, wisdom is the ability to see reality in this world and ourselves as we truly are, not as we wish we were, not as we want to be, but to see reality as it truly is, and then to respond appropriately. And Packer, he compares this, he calls it skillful living, and he compares it to skillful driving. He says, and to be a skillful driver, you don't need to know that engineer's plans for every stretch of road. You don't need to know why the road bends here and not there, why they put a bridge here and not over there. To be a skillful driver, all you need is to manage your speed and respond appropriately to what's before you, the reality that's before you. Packer writes, he says, to live wisely, you have to be clear-sighted and realistic, ruthlessly so, and looking at life as it is. Wisdom will not go with comforting illusions, false sentiment, or the use of rose-colored glasses. Most of us live in a dream world with our heads in the clouds and our feet off the ground. We never see the world and our lives in it as they really are. This deep-seated, sin-bred unrealism is one reason why there is so little wisdom among us, even the soundest and most orthodox of us. What he's saying is we all live in the real world, but we all have a tendency in our minds, you know, to, to, to kind of have a bias towards these illusions and try to live and as if these illusions were true. And I don't know if there's any place where this is more true than in relationships. And so today we're going to talk about wisdom in relationships because, I mean, people, we're wonderful, right? And we're confounding. People are encouraging the source of so much joy and also the source of so much heartache and frustration. I mean, I want you to think about the problems in your life right now and how many of them involve people. Can everyone think of one problem that involves someone else? What's the solution? How do you navigate that problem well? I'll tell you, this unrealism, what I've seen, you know, I'm a pastor, I work with people through their problems, and I can't tell you how many people have come into my office, sat down and said, man, I've got this real problem, and I'm like, well, with this person, okay, well, well how do we move forward? How can we solve it? And almost inevitably, the solution is that other person would just change and be a different person. Everything would be fine if they would just live according to the ideal that I have for them. But wisdom is recognizing people for who they are, complicated, beautiful, frustrating, and wonderful, and then responding appropriately. And so the teacher, he gives us some guidance, some general principles for wise living and relationships. And we're going to look at three. Number one, the teacher teaches us that the wise guard their lips. Number two, the wise, they guard their ears. And then lastly, the wise are people who guard their hearts, their lips, their ears, their hearts. But starting with their lips. One of the things the teacher does in Ecclesiastes as he's offering these proverbs is he's always contrasting the wise person with the fool. And he's kind of holding the fool up as saying, don't be like this, be like this instead. And so in Ecclesiastes 10, verse 12, the teacher says, words from the mouth of the wise are gracious, but fools are consumed by their own lips. At the beginning, their words are folly. At the end, they are wicked madness. And fools 
multiply words. And so the picture given here of the fool is someone who just talks a lot. And I know some people here, you're more prone, there are more talkative people than not. And I'm not saying you're a fool. I'm also not saying you're not a fool. But what he says is fools talk a lot and they don't, they don't realize the power of their words when they speak. So they're talking a lot, but they don't recognize the power that's embedded in all of those words. Proverbs 18, 17 says, the mouths of fools are their undoing and their lips are a snare to their very lives. And I could list dozens of Proverbs like this, that the wise person recognizes that words are weighty things, some of the weightiest things that we as human beings can wield. And the fool doesn't recognize the weight And so they just talk a lot and they say a lot. Maybe they brag, maybe they boast. Typically, though, the fool is one who brings division and destruction. They gossip, they slander, false accusations, insinuations. You know, they cast suspicion on other people's character. They bear false witness is one that shows up a lot in Proverbs. And what's really interesting is in the sketch of the fool. So they talk a lot. They don't recognize the power of their words. They bring destruction And they often don't even realize that they're doing it. Ecclesiastes 10.3, as fools walk along the road, they lack sense and show everyone how stupid they are. They're just walking along talking, and with their mouths, they're revealing an awful lot of their folly. So if we're going to be a people who wisely navigate life and relationships, we have to recognize the power of our words. Proverbs 12:18 says that reckless words pierce like a sword. Proverbs 18:21 says the tongue has the power of life and death. Let our words have the power of life and death and we know this. We know that words can destroy. They can physically destroy people, they can kill. How many murders have been the result of words, harsh, careless, thoughtless words spoken? How many wars were started? Over words, brings physical destruction or words. They can bring psychological destruction. I read this quote years ago. I think about it still. It's from Dale Bruner. He says this, The schoolyard, schoolyard taunt, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, is not true. There are many people in mental ward, wards because hateful names or words are lodged in their psyche like bullets in a spine. Words that question our intelligence or especially our character hurt deeply. Words that throw our mental ability into question or that consider us morally vile reach places in our nervous system that even lasers cannot touch. I bet every person here can remember words from their childhood that were spoken and that cut them. They're still there. See, part of what makes words so powerful is words name things. And and names communicate value or lack thereof. Many, many people spend years in therapy because of the damage that was done to them with words. Words can bring physical destruction. Words can bring psychological destruction. Words also have the power to destroy relationships and fractures fracture communities. Proverbs 16, 28 says a perverse person stirs up conflict and a gossip separates close friends. 
In Proverbs 13, 3 says, He who guards his mouth protects his life, but the one who opens his lips invite his own ruin. And the picture that's given in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs is our words are so powerful and we have to be wise in how we use them because once they, they leave, you can't get them back. You ever, in the heat of a moment, said something and as it was coming out of your mouth, you were like, this should not leave. And then it goes and you would do anything you could to like pull it back or catch it. No one, just me. But what happens once the words are out there, they're out there. And you can apologize, and you probably should, and you can repent. But once the words are out, they're gone. You can't unring the bell. This can be in hurtful things that you say. This can be in all kinds of ways when we misuse our words. There's an old Jewish fable that drives this, this point home. There is a man in a village who heard some juicy gossip about a neighbor of his. And being a religious man, he decided to share it as a prayer request with a bunch of people, which is just kind of how religious people gossip. And he, he told people, and they told some people. By the end of the week, the entire village knew the story. The only problem was it wasn't true. And there were some elements of truth to the story, but there was a whole lot more to the story. Now, when the man found this out, he was crushed, and he felt horrible. And so he went to his rabbi and asked him what he could do to repent and repair the damage that he'd done. And the rabbi was kind of a quirky guy, and so he walked into the rabbi's home, and the rabbi shared what was going on, and the rabbi said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home and get a feather pillow and then report back to me. So the man, okay, goes home, gets one of his feather pillows, reports back to him, and then the rabbi hands him a really razor-sharp knife. And he said, now I want you to cut this pillow open. Slash it open. He's confused, but did what the rabbi told him. Slash the pillow open. Immediately, feathers were everywhere. You know, they're, they're all over both of the men. They're on the couch. They're on the floor. They're on the side table. The window's open, so it caught a number of these feathers that were floating in the air and started blowing them down the street throughout the village. And the rabbi just sat there for a number of minutes, and finally he spoke, and he said, okay, here's what I want you to do to make amends, to repent. Go and gather all of those feathers. And the man said, are you kidding me? That's impossible. And the rabbi said, exactly. So too it's impossible for you to retrieve the careless words that you've spoken. See, the wise, the wise person recognizes the power of words, and so they guard their lips accordingly. They don't say everything that they want to say. They don't say everything that, that comes across their mind. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, he actually refers to this as the ministry of holding one's tongue. And he says, it must be a decisive rule of every Christian fellowship that each individual is prohibited from saying much that occurs to him. I guess such great wisdom for all of us. This is kind of what we do as parents, you know. Hey, just because you think it doesn't mean you have to say it. Be good for us to remember that sometimes too because we have a lot of thoughts and judgments and concerns. We make assumptions, jump to conclusions, assume the worst. And it's bad enough to have the thoughts, but the minute we put words to them with other people, 
destruction can come. And so the wise, the teacher says, know how to guard their lips. And to navigate relationships with wisdom, you have to guard your lips. But that's not all. And I'll say, you know, it's hard enough to keep a tight rein on your own tongue. But what about when people speak ill of you? What about when people say things about you that you feel like are unfair? Maybe it's a rumor, a whisper, an insinuation. How should you respond? Typically, I think we fight fire with fire. So if someone pokes us with their words, we poke back. If they jab us, we jab back. If they start a rumor, you know, we counter the rumor. And before you know it, it's like a roaring blaze of destruction. And this is where the teacher says, for you, you got to guard your lips. You can't guard other people's lips, but you can guard your ears. Look with me at verse 21 from chapter 7. The teacher says, do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. That hit home with anyone. I remember the first time I read that, like, ouch, that's so true. The wise person recognizes that there's, there's great prudence and not taking everything you hear, especially things you hear about yourself, to heart. Now, Charles Spurgeon, he was a famous pastor and preacher. He also, he spent a lot of his time investing into young men, raising them up for the ministry. And one of his books is called Lectures to My Students. They're lectures that he gave to his students on preparing them for the ministry. And one of the lectures he gave was entitled The Blind Eye and the Deaf Ear. And it comes from this very verse. Spurgeon writes this, You cannot stop people's tongues, and therefore the best thing is to stop your own ears and never mind what is spoken. There is a world of idle chit-chat abroad, and he who takes note of it will have enough to do. He will find that even those who live with him are not always singing his praises, and that when he has displeased his most faithful servants, they have, in the heat of the moment, spoken fierce words, which it would be better for him not to have heard. Who has not, under temporary irritation, said that of another which he has afterward regretted? It is the part of the generous to treat passionate words as if they had never been uttered. It's the part of the generous to treat passionate words as if they had never been uttered. We all say things we don't necessarily mean, and most of us, we tend also to show grace to ourselves rather quickly. We say something in the heat of the moment, something we shouldn't have said, but then we'll just, you know, there's an excuse. I was frustrated, I was tired, I was angry, I was misinformed, which is probably true, but we don't tend to show that kind of grace to other people. We'll say it, but we don't show it. But the wise know that everyone can be foolish, and everyone can speak out of their foolishness, and so they live with one deaf ear. And... As providence would have it, my family, we went on a, a trip to the lake a couple weeks ago, and I got a horrible case of swimmer's ear. And so I, for like 10 days, I haven't been able to hear out of my left ear. So it's been really good practice for me. And pray for our marriage, because it's very frustrating uh, for my wife. But I can tell you, like something I've learned with literally one deaf ear over the last 10 days, is a lot of things that people say, really, they're not that important and they don't need to be said. Someone says something, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. What'd you say? 
Never mind. Doesn't matter. It's not worth repeating. I would say the wisdom of this proverb is so sorely needed in our day. Because the spirit of our day, I mean, with the internet and everything else, there's just there's so much gossip, there's anger, there's bitterness, there's we just live in an accusatory world, and some of this is really justified, and I want to be clear about that. Like over the last several years, a lot of corruption, long-standing corruption, has been brought to the light. And I praise God for that. Structures and systems that hide abuse have been brought to the light. People have been exposed. All of that's really good. But I think what it's done is it's made us as a people inherently suspicious of everyone and everything. Furthermore, there's kind of this, I don't know how to say it. Uh, It's like we... We so want to identify with victims and so value victims' voices that it seems like everyone wants to be a victim in everything. People have become injustice collectors, overly sensitive, filled with bitterness, always suspicious. You guys see this, right? I mean, this is like the air that we breathe right now. And I got to tell you, none of these things lead to a life of love, freedom, wisdom, or flourishing. Inherently suspicious, bitter people who are always collecting injustices. You know, when any time someone wrongs them, they collect it. This is a good one. You know, they put it in bubble wrap so that they can save it and use it later against someone. It doesn't lead to life. Proverbs 19.11 says that good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is his, it's a man's glory to overlook an offense. And that's exactly what the teacher's teaching us here. It's, it's to one's glory to overlook an offense. It's to one's glory to not take every word to heart, to let it go, to write it off as foolish words spoken in a heated moment, to move forward in life, not, not to collect everything and put it in a suitcase and carry it with you everywhere you go. I think that's a behavior and a a skill that we're not real good at in the American church. Now, I want to be really clear. Overlooking an offense is not always the right course of action. I want to be really clear that abuse, destructive behavior, wickedness, these things are happening. They need to be exposed. So it's not always the right answer. I also want to be clear that you can't demand that someone overlook one of your offenses. And no one can demand that you overlook their offense. So I don't want to hear someone going home, living in an abusive situation or a really painful situation or a situation filled with sin, and then one, especially in a marriage, one partner wields this against the other. Well, you just need to overlook it. No, no, no. Overlooking is not an expectation. It's a gift. It's a gift you can give, but it's a beautiful gift. It's a sweet gift that can bring healing to relationships, not just to that person, but to yourself as well. The wise know that it's often best to let things go. And a life of collecting injustices, it's not a life filled with joy. And furthermore, as Christians, I mean, we know Jesus was the greatest injustice collector in the world. He took them all, and then he went on the cross, and he took all of the injustices that we've done to God on himself.
And so the teacher says the wise, to navigate relationships with wisdom, you've got to guard your lips. You also got to guard your ears. And then lastly, the teacher says the wise guard their hearts. Ecclesiastes 10, 4. The teacher says, if a ruler's anger rises against you, do not leave your post, for calm, calmness can lay great offenses to rest. You know, in the world and in our lives, in the face of conflict, it's usually fight or flight. We either, someone gets mad, we'll either get mad back and get into an argument, or if someone gets really mad, then we just want to escape. And the teacher here actually says there's another way, that you can remain present, and not, but not get caught up in it. She can be faithfully there, but still remain calm. The wise person is someone who's not just a master their behavior, what they say, what they choose to hear. They've also mastered the ability to guard their hearts and control their emotions. They're calm. They're non-reactive. When the temperature in the room's going up, Everyone's getting kind of worked up, and everyone's kind of worked up these days emotionally. The wise person is actually able to step into it with a calmness. They can remain in the tense situation without getting overwhelmed by it. And the scriptures applaud this kind of person again and again. I'll just read you one. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. Someone who's slow to anger, who can remain calm in tense situations... They are wise, but he who has a quick temper exalts folly. I wonder if this is true for you. I've tended to see that oftentimes the calmest person in the room is also the wisest person in the room. And in arguments and tense situations, maybe in your family, the calmest member of the family in those moments often usually almost always has the best things to say and the best insight. The people who are most worked up often do not. I think that the wise, they know the wisdom that it's often best to de-escalate, not escalate things. Proverbs 16.32 says, He who is slow to anger is better than a warrior. And he who controls his temper is greater than one who captures a city. Doesn't that sound amazing? Like, wouldn't that be amazing to never get angry, to never get all fired up, but to actually be able to step into whatever situation it is, and it can be tense and, you know, put knots in your stomach, or you, you can want to get angry, but to actually be able to step in with calmness, to lay great offenses to rest, as the teacher says. I think it'd be wonderful, but it's, it's just not easy. And this is where we have to remember Ecclesiastes is wonderful, but it also, it's not comprehensive. And the teacher, he shows us, tells us what it looks like to navigate relationships wisely, but he doesn't actually tell us how to do it, right? Like a lot of these Proverbs, I'm like, that's wonderful, Okay, how do I actually do that, though? It's kind of like you can watch the Olympics, and it's like they can do it, and it's like, man, that's amazing, the jump that they did, and they got over the thing, and they did. But 
But how do you, how do you actually get there? How do we actually change in these ways? Because if I just told you guys, watch your lips, watch your ears, watch your heart. May the Lord be with you. See you next week. It might help you for a few days. And then you'll come back and I'll preach another sermon and give you other application. You'll kind of forget. Like, how do we actually experience lasting change? It's not, it's not enough. I'm not saying we shouldn't put forth effort. We absolutely should. But how do we actually grow in this? I mean, is there anyone here who does not want to be wise? Is there anyone here who's like, you know what? I, I've just nailed it with my speech. It's always perfect. I never take anything to heart. I'm always calm. Well, Jesus, he shows us it's not just a matter of behavior. It's a matter of the heart. Matthew 12, he declares that it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. And again and again in the teachings of Jesus, he says, if we want to actually deal with these behaviors that we have that are holding us back, it's not enough just to address the behavior. What really has to happen is you have to get to the heart. I think this is a good time to even examine your own heart. Do you want to be a person who wisely uses your words? Who brings healing to relationships? Who brings calm in heated situations? Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the meek. I think a lot of the Christian life is about what do we desire? And it's not just what do we want, it's what do we really desire? Who do we want to become? Who do you want to be? Do you want to be the same person 10 years from now that you are now? Now, the wonder and the glory of the gospel is that Jesus came and he came and he took our sins on himself on the cross. He took the penalty for our sins. So for our, our bragging and our boasting and our gossip or our harsh words and our anger, like he took the penalty of that on the cross. And that's good and it's true and it's one of our great hopes. But that's not all that happened through Christ. The promise given in the scriptures is that he also came not just to take our sins, but to give us new hearts. Ezekiel 36, the Lord declares, he's looking forward, prophesying, I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. And be careful to keep my laws. And so being a Christian, it's believing that Christ has taken our sin and that we are declared righteous in God's sight. But it's also living out of this new heart that Jesus has given us. And I haven't quite figured out the metaphor. Paul also says, though, that for the Christian, there's the old self, the old man, the old woman. And the new self. And so in some ways, it's, it's like Jesus took out our heart of stone, but we still have a bent towards sin. Every single one of us, we, we have a civil war raging in our soul every day. 
between the way of sin, the way of our flesh, and the way of Christ. Living out of the new heart that Christ has given us or living out of the old self. And that's where so many of our problems in life, if you try to hit them directly, you're never going to get them. Because they're heart level. They're not just behavior, they're heart. They're, They're really, what are you living out of? And I found no better way to live out of the new heart God's given us than to sit and never move beyond with the gospel. In the gospel, we recognize the depths of our sin, the bitterness, the envy, self-righteousness, even the murderous thoughts we might have. But in the gospel, we're also reminded of the wonders of God's grace. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he set us free against from all of the, the things we've done against him, all of the, the evil we've committed, you know, the rap sheet he has against us, like he tore it up and he took the penalty on the cross. And what this does is it, it sets us free in relationships. It sets us free from trying to gain things from people, from trying to use people, or from trying to be right. And what it does is it sets us free to love. And if you know anything about the early church, it was the way they loved, not just each other, but the world, people in the world. That's what changed the world. It wasn't just more knowledge. It wasn't just winsome communicators. It was they live lives marked by deep love. How do we do that? I don't, I don't know. I have some ideas. It's interesting when you study Paul's life in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, Paul describes himself as the least of the apostles. He's like, I'm, I'm an apostle, but I'm not as good as the other guys. They got to, you know, 5,000, all the great stories. They were there. I wasn't there for it. And then about 10 years later, Paul in Ephesians describes himself as the least of all of God's people. I wonder what happened in those 10 years. And then a few years after that, he wrote his first letter to Timothy, and he declared, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Over a matter of a couple of decades, Paul went from seeing himself as the least of the apostles to the least of all of God's people to the worst of sinners. What's happening? Paul, he wasn't backsliding. I would say this is the natural progression of someone who is following Jesus. You get to know him more. You see your own sin and brokenness more, weakness more clearly. And it makes you a person who lives from a place of gratitude. You've got to sit with it, though. John Newton, famous hymn writer and work to abolish the slave trade. I read this, these diaries or these letters that he'd written years ago, and there was one part that just stuck out to me. He said, when I was young, I was certain of many things, now only two, that I am a great sinner and Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. And so you have relational conflicts and problems in your life. Maybe it's in your marriage with your spouse. Maybe... You know, the last 15 years, I know it did a number on a lot of marriages. Maybe it's with your kids. 
because they've been locked at home with you for a really long time. Maybe it's with your parents. Maybe it's with friends. I just wonder what it would look like to embody the spirit of Christ, to be the kind of person who lives the way Paul lived. What it might look like to bring that to bear in your relationships. And I wonder what relationships in your life might need attending, uh, might need to draw near to. As you think about that, we come to the Lord's Supper and we're reminded that the Christian life is ultimately a life filled with freedom. And as Christians, we don't have to be afraid to look, you know, wisdom, what's wisdom? It's seeing reality for what it really is. That means also seeing ourselves for who we really are. And we don't have to be afraid to look because we know that on the cross, Jesus took our sin, that his body was broken, and that his blood was shed on our behalf. And when we come to the table, we are reminded once again that we are safe in the love of God, that he provides for us, and that he is committed to our good. And so that actually enables us to be honest, to look inward. And to ask what God might be desiring from us. So if you're here and you're a Christian, I encourage you to feast on the table. If you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're here and you don't know where you stand, I want you to know that Christ gave his life for you so that you would experience an eternity with God, but also so that your life today would be different, that your heart would be changed, and that your desires would be transformed. And I encourage you to put your trust in him. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jamison, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.